Sci-Fi Tech Talk. This is Sci-Fi Tech Talk. Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Jeff Sire, and with me today is Julie Keel. Hello. And Mike McPeak. Hi, everyone. Uh, this week we'll be covering the book The Difference Engine by William Gibson. Uh, the synopsis from Goodreads.com is uh, 1850, the Industrial Revolution is in full inexorable swing, powered by steam-driven cybernetic engines. Charles Babbage perfects his analytical engine, and the computer age arrives a century ahead of its time, and three extraordinary characters race towards a rendezvous with history uh, and the future. Sybil Gerard, a dishonored woman and daughter of a Luddite agitator, Edward Leviathan Mallory, explorer and paleontologist, Lawrence Oliphant, diplomat and spy. Um, their adventure begins with the discovery of a box of punched engine cards of unknown origin and purpose. Cards someone wants bad badly enough to kill for. Okay. Yeah. Because... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was re- trying to. It's been two months ago since I read this, so I might be a little rusty. And I was trying to refresh myself with um, some, reading some synopsis. And the consensus seemed to be that there was some stuff in there that was kind of interesting, but you had to do a lot of slogging to get to it. A lot of slogging. I'm still tired <laughs> when I think about it. On the positive side, this book is. Uh, at least in part credited with starting the whole steampunk writing movement. So that's you know that's saying something. And there are <laughs> there are people that love William Gibson. I don't think any and, of the three of us fall into that category. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I would even have a hard time considering this true science fiction fiction for sure. Historical fiction, perhaps. Speculative fiction. Yeah, there you go. It's like if sort of thing. Yeah, alternate universe type thing, sort of. Yeah. So um, it felt like read. read, I couldn't even. (laughs) I couldn't even read it. Um, I had to switch to audio because I just I couldn't read it. Um, So I have to admit, there were times when it was like, "What the hell is going on?" And for me, listening to it. Um, the book kind of built up towards this great crescendo, which I assume was like halfway, two-thirds of the way through the book. And then I don't know what the hell happened after that, and I don't know yeah. why that last third of the book existed. I just have no freaking clue what the hell the point of this book was at the end. It was like some great reveal and some point to the story, and I completely didn't get it. I, yeah. I don't know... I don't understand. Like, there are tons of people that love William Gibson's books, and I fall into the same category as, as you, Julie. I just, like, I, I it's like wading through water, and you're like, what? Where is this going? And then you finish it, like, what was the point of all that? Like, I just, I don't know. Like, it's just uh, his style of writing or what it is. I've read a couple of his, I think I might have read, I think I've read three of his books now, and I'm just like, they're all they all kind of fall into the same category. It's like it's like there's a party going on and I can't figure out what we're celebrating. <laughs> you know? To me it's like going out at forty below zero and then remembering it's forty below zero and what the hell there's nothing that damned important to go out at forty below zero, you know, yet there you are. Um so it just yeah, I 
We should also say up front uh, that the th- all three of us are kind of maybe in varying degrees of not really enjoying this book. But that shouldn't take anything away from anybody who loves this. Like, we're going to go over it. Like, you know, screw us if you don't yeah, you like this. This is for you. Good right. for you. you know? And I can see where if people are big into the steampunk thing or really enjoy Victorian England or whatever, that this would be so seriously cool. And it's just, I mean, it's not that it's bad. It's just not for me. Um, but I do, well, I, I, will, I will argue that there is something bad about it when even somebody who slogged through can't quite figure out what the hell the point of the story was at the end. So, but yeah, well, I was. End, well, go ahead, Mike. I was just yeah. I got to the end and I was trying to figure out because it, yeah, it felt like they were just bringing these things together and I didn't quite you know follow and yeah, it probably would have helped if I would have if I would know more about English history to know what was real and what was not you know what was the fiction part um so I was you know I kind of I didn't think Byron was ended up being prime minister and you know like I say there's just some things I was confused about but I did like the idea that you know what would happen if the computer revolution had happened 100 years before what would how would it have looked in a different country Right, and the other, my big takeaway from this is just how critical a time period that truly was because there was a time when basically pretty much all the movers and shakers in science knew each other and it was close enough for pretty much anybody to grasp and jump into and, and get involved with at a very high, you know, high yeah. level. Um, you know, if you wanted to go make massive discoveries and have stuff named after you, you could go work on physics or mathematics or paleontology, and chances are really good you were going to invent something that was going to be, you know, just completely new and groundbreaking. You yeah. know, so to me, that to the, the the most interesting thing I took away from this book was the idea that at this point in history, science was not some big high-tech thing. It was just stuff people were doing with their hands and their, you know, the machines that they were building themselves. Uh, it wasn't, you know, that indistinguishable from magic place where we're many of our technologies are right now. But you're right. So much of this was just being done by individuals. And then over time, we've moved further and further and further and further away from that. Like uh, <clears throat> I read uh, something about the uh, the recent discovery of gravity waves, mm-hmm. that there's some speculation because those, those guys are going to win the Nobel Prize for that. Um, and there's some speculation that this might be the very first time where a team of people win the Nobel Prize for something because in that specific thing, you can't point to any single person that did the whose name is hanging on the whole project, that it really is this giant collaborative team that worked over me, over decades to develop this, right? And that's an interesting turning point right there. I think that's yeah. really... I mean, I was thinking back to when I was doing research at universities and who my colleagues were. And you know what? There were a handful, and I can still name them, um, that were doing what I was doing and whose research I was familiar with. And we all talked the same language, and we were, you know, basically had the same understanding of the f- field at the time. But... 
again, that was a handful of people, whereas what in this 1855 time frame that this book is set in, it's pretty much like all of the, what is it's it's uh, the Royal Society or whatever it was. Everybody right. there was pretty much at the top of their game on everything that they were doing, whether it's botany or biology or physics or mathematics or whatever. So, yeah. It's it's uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, seriously, it, it is an interesting time in history. Uh, so many things were happening, and you know, we talk about how fast the uh, the twentieth century evolved, but that only ha- happened because of things that were going on in the mid eight or eighteen hundreds. So, um, it, it it's it, the time frame was kind of interesting to just kind of muck around in for a little while. One thing I found interesting was that they all have these, uh, there's like different types of engines out there, and kind of like computers, not all of them, you know, speak the same language. You still have the the incompatibility of some of them because not all cards would work in all um, computers. You know, and that's interesting because at this point, um, English is the de facto programming language of the world. Um, and as much as some things, you know, websites or programs or whatever get translated into other language, the actual coding is pretty much all done in English. The same with, t- uh, like, pilots all have to speak English. Ham radio is all English. So um, having that one language, one standard, one th- way of communicating with everybody about that one thing is something that, yeah, in this book, that had not yet been established. Um, so yeah, there were there were competing technologies basically. So, which you know, for better or for worse, you know, the VHS Betamax war a hundred years prior. Yeah, but good luck trying to get you know a Windows program to run on Mac or you know something like that. Uh, I just rewatched IT Crowd, uh, the <laughs> robot in the street. What's the operating system? Vista. We're gonna die anyway. Um, <laughs> But, you know, this this story, from just a general standpoint, I kind of like historical fiction that puts you in, it tells the story of what's going on, even if it's the story of a person in a specific place during history. This is not historical fiction. Jeff, you mentioned it was speculative fiction, so I mean, yeah. you can't do that. But it still does kind of put you in that time frame and kind of get... Um, some sense of what the world was like at that point Um, because whoever's writing this has got to be true to that time frame even though they're changing stuff up um, they still have to put it in that context or else it's just complete nonsense Um, so it was kind of interesting to to see you know gaslight and the big stink in London which you know that really really happened those are real things yep yeah yep I know there was another one in the fifties that the London fog or something where it was just like it was a uh, uh, climate inversion where the the uh, coal smoke wasn't able to escape and the visibility dropped to like zero and all these people died and kind of like Beijing. And that, that, yeah, well, then and that only happened in the fifties, right? And nobody really talks about it. Yeah, yeah, London's had that happen a couple times, as far as I know. And I mean, like you're right, seriously bad stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but it to me that this book that's a that's where this book should have ended. I mean, 
uh, Mallory, who was the protagonist, I guess, um, through much of the book, had basically... Um, he was a member. What is the Royal Society? Uh, it's the Royal. It's not the Geographic Society. Anyway, it's it's the famous one that I should know off the top the, of my the tongue. The Royal Academy of Science, isn't it? Is that is what it is? One? Yeah, so. it was the bit. You know, like Charles Darwin belonged to it, yeah. and all, all those people. Um, but um, he had been off on an, uh, an ex- excursion, shall we call it, um, to Wyoming to dig up dinosaurs. He essentially, it sounded like discovered the Brontosaurus. And I, I, too, did not go back and fact-check because I was so sick of this book. I didn't want to spend any more time on it. <laughs> but um, he had uh, you know, brought that back, and um, it, 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 you know, most of this revolved around... I don't even know what this damn book revolved around. I, I, it, revolved, it revolved around a set of punch cards is what it revolved around. Did we ever find out what the hell those punch cards were for? Well, there was I some really eye at the very yeah. end. There was some eye. It was like so. It we did bounce forward in time to like 1931, and I didn't get any of that. I understood nothing See, of what was going on. I, at that point. I wondered if if they were like the first uh, stab at artificial intelligence because that seemed to be the big kind of reveal at the end. Is that the the book was sort of written by some artificially intelligent. Uh, analytical engine yeah i i saw that footnote or something too about artificial intelligence and went huh um so whatever (laughs) well there seemed to be some subplot i think about smuggling guns into america uh oh there was the, the best part about america at that point is it was four different countries there was um the Yankees, the Confederacy, the Texians, and the Californians, I believe. So those of us here in the Dakotas were still like in, I suppose we'd have been in Indian territory at that point. So, I yeah. So that was one of the pieces of history that, while in context and somewhat believable and tied to actual history, was complete nonsense. And, you know, it's like, okay. But it played into but that, it. But that didn't make... Like I never really followed why because you guys didn't have you, did, you guys didn't have your civil war until the eighteen sixties, yet there was a Confederate States of America before that in in this world, but they never explained why. Yeah, and there was nothing about. Well, the one thing they said about why is that Britain had been in there mucking it up. They had specifically um, maneuvered to keep America split up or else they would have gone from coast to coast like it did. So there but, was but a line in there about, you know, that Britain was... Britain did that in, like in, in the real world, like in our timeline. Britain kind of always, like uh, from the War of Independence, Britain wasn't very happy and did what they could to kind of throw... You know, wrenches in the works. Well, it apparently for, in the difference guys, engine, they were yeah. successful. The, yeah. The Union never did encompass, you know, all of the 13 colonies. And, yeah, Texas was its own thing going back and forth. And, yeah, so... Maybe the original uh, War of Secession or War of Independence or whatever you guys call it, The uh, maybe that was never fully successful in this book. I, it, yeah... Either that or the War of 1812, uh, you know, instead of uniting the country, you know, it divided it somehow. 
Uh, again, I'm no historian, but I do know that you know that was uh, last as best I can remember it. I'm sure I'm going to have historians throwing their iPods across the room, but uh, I think that was Britain's last real major attempt, uh, or you know, in the military point of view, anyway, trying to disrupt the you know United States. Okay, I, I would like to step in here on Please behalf do. of uh, of the uh, the British Empire of the Commonwealth. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, the War of 1812 was an expansionary war that you guys started, and it is a point of contention. You guys might not even realize this, but it's kind of Probably a point not. of contention in Canada that uh, it's considered a stalemate. I don't really think it's a stalemate, because if you start a war of expansion and you don't expand, you freaking lost. lost. <laughs> so, so that's kind of my take on it, because like, nothing changed ultimately. Right. But uh, you kind of had... Which you is know, why us as Americans who, are like the War of eighteen twelve. Ah, what was that about again? Yeah. Huh? Now, I also want to say that we as Canadians really take too much ownership of that because it was really a war of uh, of the United States versus Great Britain, and we as Canadians were really kind of secondary actors because almost all of the fighting was done by British regulars and uh, and native. Uh, uh, Aboriginal Canadians. There were very few actually Canadian colonists that were, you know, actually fighting. So I think Canadians kind of uh, kind of overstepped the kind of rah rah part of the War of eighteen twelve a bit. Right. Uh, yeah, because when you start to look at it, we were really kind of more spectators than anything. So. <laughs> Uh, speaking of spectators, one of the things that kind of was at the crux of this, and this was about the only thing I could figure out that was kind of a thread throughout, was Lady Babbage, or no, Lady Byron, had right. something. Anyway, she had these punch cards, and basically she was a gambling addict, it sounded like. And yeah. I got the impression, and I still don't know if it's the right one or not, but I got the impression that she was writing essentially computer programs to um, beat the house. So these cards that everybody was chasing after, again, I'm, I'm still confused as to what, and I did read a couple of plot summaries on this, and they didn't help either. <clears throat> I have no idea what the hell the point of this was, because the... The cards could have been like a, a gambling thingy, or it could have been this artificial intelligence thingy. And why would those two be even close to yeah. being confused? Because those are two different things. And But I, I never really saw any sort of reasoning for how she was, even if she'd been able to write some program that was able to beat the house, it wasn't like she could bring one of these engines into the gambling establishment with her to use it. Like, right. I never really understood how she was going to take I, advantage of this thing. So. Yeah, and if you're at the track, uh, you're not writing programs, you know. The, I, I, Yeah, there was so much of this that just, I don't get. Well, I didn't get yeah, it. like I said, it's been, uh, like I say, two months since I read it, so I'm trying to remember, and I forgot a lot along the way, but I thought it was something to do with that could be used to influence the way the engines compute, uh, computed things. Basically, I won't say a, a, a virus per se, but I, you know, some, I, I thought it had some way to do, whoever had this could kind of uh, manipulate or control 
the difference engines because they were becoming like computers today. They were becoming an integral part of their society because they were using them for um, information collection, you know, like we're doing for computers today. And I got the feeling that whoever had this could access or interpret or control the data somehow. Well, one of the things that was interesting about their society and the, their, 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 their dependence upon computers, essentially they already had credit cards. You had a citizen number, um, and you could argue, like in the U.S., if that was a social security number or what, but um, your records could be pulled up based on that. You could uh, put things on credit based on your uh, citizen number. You could book a train ticket with your citizen number. You could send telegraphs using a citizen number, and that wouldn't even require that you know their address. I mean, as long as you had their citizen number, it would get to them. So... Um, that was kind of interesting. And there also was one point in the book, too, I remember, where one of the people um, essentially had proposed um, data mining to invent sociology. Um, they, they had not, apparently at that point, the idea of looking at the types of people that live in certain areas and do certain things and demographics and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, are usually frontline um front page headlines um, on an almost daily basis um, was just essentially somebody said, hey, you guys at the police station, you have, you know, downtime overnight. Could we run some of these numbers, which essentially was data mining, um, and see if we can, you know, kind of analyze what people are doing out there so we can better predict what they're doing. It's like, yeah, okay. So that was, again, that was kind of, to me that kind of was an, an interesting uh, take on how a person could, you know, do science, like invent an entire genre of science. Um, But it was also curious, too, that these computer engines were mechanical, and so that you needed people to operate them. For lack of a better term, and I'm going to use it because I think it's a little bit descriptive of the job, they were grease monkeys. Um... And you had to schedule time on them. And I'm old enough to remember when you had to do that with punch cards. So that was pretty... Um, they were they were phasing them out. They were just... You know, few people still had them. But working at the I.O. window, you know, you had to schedule time on the punch card machine. Um, mm. But they... Um, yeah, that that was kind of interesting how we nowadays are used to computers, you know, being instantly in our pockets. I mean, in fact, I f- pretty much freak out if I get more than 15 feet away from my phone. Um, yeah. You know, whereas in those days it was like, I'm going to, uh, somebody's got to write the, pun- the punch cards. I need to find an um, engine that will, you know, let me access the information on the punch card. So, you know, that was kind of a throwback, in this case, to 1855, but it truly was a throwback to the early days of computing. Well, and the thing I found interesting, too, is because, you know, the computers that we have are electronic. And so if you maintain things properly, there shouldn't be any degradation of parts. But these things were mechanical. And so uh, they had to uh, keep a close eye on things. And like I say, they had to grease it and they had to do certain things to it because any amount of wear would introduce uh, errors into the computation because it was ran mechanically on a set of yeah. gears and everything else. Think of hanging chads. 
<laughs> oh God, let's not go back to that. I okay, know. We'll flashback. But that is kind of the the risk that you know they were talking about. You know, if if the if you're dealing with punch cards and the holes are off at all, and or they get ragged edges or whatever, yeah, the the computing just stops. You know, they're they're worthless. So yeah. But well, in this case, I don't think it was it would stop, but I think it would throw their calculations off it's like if you start doing a series of rounding uh the more you round the more inaccurate things are going to become true and it could potentially stop it it could potentially just jam it up eventually yeah yeah. you know it's interesting too that one of the main characters uh sybil gerard or sybil jones or whatever her name was originally um her father was a um, revolutionary, basically, or an anti-revolutionary. He's a Luddite. And they had basically the Luddite revolution, the radical Luddite radicals. They call them the Rads. Um, and they were thoroughly, thoroughly squashed, um, hanged and whatever. And so this idea of, of, of um, not welcoming the technology was dangerous. I mean, if if you would, weren't embracing the technology, you could have been called a Luddite and thrown in prison slash hanged slash whatever. Well, so, if, yeah. if you were resisting it. Yes. Uh, or, yeah, actively. Uh, yeah, or if people kind of just sussed out that you were, you know, not... I don't know if it went so far to be... to. Uh, being, you know, having an opinion about it or whatever, but yeah, if you weren't embracing the the changes, um, you could be labeled a Luddite, and that was um, a dangerous label to have. Whereas nowadays, people, you know, there are there's a whole movement of people that are actively embracing Luddites. They're getting off the grill or off the grid, and um, you know, living off the grill. That'd be good too. It's hot. Um, but, you know, so th- as much as, you know, especially the three of us probably embrace technology completely, bring us more. That's why we're talking about mm-hmm. science fiction. Um, there's a whole kind of pushback saying, you know, I, you know, not necessarily I just want a small plot of land and a bunch of time to do what I want to do. Well, and they were raising the concern, I believe, that, you know, some people have now that, yeah, like I say, we all embrace the technology, but even I wonder, you know, what, with the technology that we have, do we lose our personal freedom if we ever really had that much to begin with sometimes? But, you know, because the more things that people know about you, the more time you spend online, because there's been times I've looked at something like on Amazon or something like that. And then I go to another website and what I was looking at was over there beside, you know, the article I'm reading, you know, basically, do you want to buy this? Um, and the, just the, how much we lose our, our privacy and ourselves online. And this is what I think that, you know, the Luddites was worried about was technology is fine, but at what point do they know too much about you? And what point can they manipulate you too much? You know, I heard that one of the, I think it was David Brin. That's another science fiction author. Um, it, It made an argument about that data is out there. It's going to be out there. It's out there in massive quantities and in fine detail. It would scare the hell out of you if you actually knew what people knew. And what's dangerous about that is the lack of transparency. It's like it's that I don't care if you know everything 
or have access to all my data. What I care about is what you're doing with it. Um, right. So you tell me what you're doing with it and why you need it and, and you know where you're going to use it. Um, that's what the bigger concern is, not so much the, and raw data. Uh, you know, the fact that all the cell phone companies have every phone call you've ever made, um, you know, stored away and freely give it away to government agencies at the drop of a pin, um, you know, does that concern well it depends on exactly how they're doing that if they're doing it in the yeah. aggregate maybe not so much if they're doing it you know if they're singling me out without a warrant that's illegal so you know that kind of yeah. it's that transparency of all that stuff i think that's a more and interesting pe- conversation people are so concerned about like the the big manipulation like oh i don't want uh, government or advertisers to manipulate me and I don't think that's really the issue because you can see that like when something when like if like in your situation with you guys having an election coming in, if you're a hardcore Republican, doesn't matter what somebody says, they're not going to change you into a Democrat. What I think what's what's the bigger issue is the nudge, like when they can see and put you and uh, determine so much about you that they, they know you so well that they don't try to turn you 180 degrees they just try and influence you a bit like okay here's something that you might not have thought about here's and then over time that's cumulative and then that can turn turn you around and you don't even realize that it's been done to you right yep yeah and that's you know the long game i guess so yeah that's a uh situation an argument a debate that we could we don't yeah no we're not going to solve that one on this podcast <laughs> yeah. but like to me that that's the far scarier thing than uh than you know the in your face <laughs> thing that tries to you know make you do a 180 degree turn because you know people are going to be as soon as the people see that they're going to be resistant to it but uh yeah i think it's it's the more subtle thing and and we've gotten to the point now that they can be very subtle to the point that you don't even realize it's being done to you. Speaking of politics, too, one of the things in the Difference Engine um, that came to a head during this, the what I consider to be the climatic scene where Mallory is in the docks and along the Thames in London and fighting off, you know, the anarchists with a buffalo gun in the middle of the stink. Um, after that, I don't know what the hell happened in the book. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, he was actually dealing with uh, communists from Manhattan. Um, <laughs> they had apparently red red New York <laughs> had, had was a thing according to this book, and um, they had come over. Um, I don't know if they were coming over to. They were kind of coming over to overthrow the British system. They they were. Yeah. Um, the monarchy was there never really was talk of a king there was talk of parliament i think yeah there was they did say something um yeah they did talk about oh they talked because they talked about uh, the royal consort uh, prince albert so there was a king okay. oh, sorry there was a queen it was victoria um but i uh, yeah it was obviously she had far re- reduced power even by that point she was uh she was more, uh, you know, the head of state, and you know, uh, she wasn't like really running the show or anything anymore. It was Parliament? 
Yeah, because there was certainly talk of lords and ladies, uh, without a doubt. So the aristocracy was alive and well. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the politics... And Sam Houston, you know, good old Sam Houston showed up in this book as well as a... The heck, what was he? A Like a... Texian. Te- or... Dishonored Texian that had been run yeah. out of the country because his wife divorced him for some unknown scandalous reason. And he was basically stumping around doing Chautauquas, trying to raise funds to take back Texian or Texas or whatever. Yeah. I, it was That was bizarre. <laughs> well, now, and look, you, Sam Houston is sort of revered as like a, like almost a god in Texas, isn't he? Like he's like the, kind of like the father, well, what one of the fathers of confederation that we would look at in Canada, like one of the kind of He'd, he'd be looked at kind of like a George Washington figure in Texas. Is that right? I'm not from Texas. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I think you're more or less right. I mean, I it, it, my history sucks, you know, as most Americans do. Um, but if I remember correctly, yeah, he kind of helped form the Republic of Texas uh, and then kind of brought it, helped bring it into the Union when they were fighting against Mexico, I believe. Um yeah, again, there's probably historians throwing iPods across the rooms. You guys are morons, but um, no, I'll fully claim that because I'm ignorant. But it's more or less, I think, what you were stating there. Okay. Yeah, to, to see him and and oh God, truly, even in this book in 1855, in the Difference Engine in the Steampunk, there was death by PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> yeah, God. I can't think of that too. Yeah, they call them kinotropes, and I did look that word up one time, and it did not pop up anywhere I was looking. But I couldn't—I don't know that I was looking in the right places. It was one of the Wikipedia articles that I saw. It said that it was uh, uh, referring to some kind of uh, pixelated display, but it was mechanically pixelated, not digitally. The hell does that mean? Uh, well, I think. Um, okay, you remember when we were kids, those light bright things? Yeah, okay. Where you would change that? I think that's what so, they're talking about. Or like an old style scoreboard where like uh, right. dots change color or whatever. Yeah, so or like a good advertising kind of sign. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or like 8 bit graphics so, on early okay. computers. So mechanically, yeah. it would be, there would actually be three light bulbs under there red, green, and, and blue, and then they would, yeah, okay. Yeah. It'd be, it's a lot like a computer screen. Anyway. And so, yeah, but, yeah, kinotropes. And apparently, you know, graphic designers were highly um, revered in that age because the, the best kinotropists were highly sought after and well-paid, it sounded like. So totally not like the current day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, so, therefore, PowerPoint is the scourge that uh, uh, extends beyond, you know, our reality into other realities and will, you know, cause pain and I just, disturbance then? I'm like, God, if you had to rewrite history, why did you put in death by PowerPoint? I mean, really? <laughs> well, maybe it's just one of those inevitable which, evils that which will is eventually come up. They didn't have photography. They talked about oh, yeah. daguerreotypes, yeah. but they did not have photography. There was no slideshows. You were doing this kinotrope thing. And so... You you know I wonder if something like photography would ev- would even be invented in an alternate timeline like that maybe eventually but maybe not on the same you know well time 
Yeah, because if you could take. Okay, so yeah, we're skip. Yeah, okay. Now you just kind of blew my mind because I'm sitting there. Because if you could, this was like the early days of scanners. Uh, you know, comparable to like the uh, yeah. 80s and 90s. Skip film, um, go straight to digital. Right. Yeah. So you could yeah. uh, basically scan something into a computer um, one way or another, and then you could uh, manipulate it. Yeah, you wouldn't have film. Um, and then you could have early Photoshop. Um, oh Lord, another thing that transcends <laughs> time. Um, but then you could have, you know, then you would be able to digitally manipulate photos into whatever you want, much like we do now. Um, I mean, because back then, if it was on film, it was pretty much carved in stone, almost, uh, so to speak. That you know, it was infutable. But once you develop digital photography and Photoshop. You know, you can paste, you know, your face onto somebody else's body and put yourself out there on Tinder or some such thing like that and completely uh, misrepresent yourself. So this is just this blows my mind that we could skip past, you know, some of this stuff and go straight to uh, deception. Well, and you could always do that with film. It was it was just a lot more Harder. intensive. Yeah, it involved exacto knives and, you know, cutting out things and you know, putting several layers of film on top of each other. So yeah, it was a pain in the ass and much less. Um, tra- I was going to say transparent, but it, it, quality went to hell. <laughs> well, yeah. So, but if you could do that, like I say, just you know, even with those uh, kinos, uh, where you could manipulate things without having to, like, say, physically dissect stuff. Yeah, this just raises whole new, you know thoughts on how the human race would have progressed yeah and it was interesting too um cars they didn't quite yet have i kind of the term cabriolet was in this book time and time again and i kind of forgotten that a cabriolet you know uh, that word was around before it referred to who had that cabriolet was that chevy anyway um so kind of forgot about that those being a thing but yeah they really were kind of at the beginning of the internal combustion engine as well what do they call them gurneys um, yeah they had like race car i'm i in my mind i'm picturing like a 1930s indy 500 you know flattened tube with four wheels stuck on the sides you know like a pinewood derby car race car uh gur- which was these gurneys that they were very few people had. I mean, we're talking like a handful in all of London, at least was the impression I got. Um, they were well, a real, I, real thing, too. Apparently they weren't very widespread, but, uh, yeah, they were like steam-powered carriages. Hmm. Well, I found it kind of interesting because they were, you know... I guess kind of the thought of the time was uh, bigger is better. And so here comes this guy with this, you know, tiny little thing. And how is that going to have enough power to, uh, you know, do what you want? And he was, you know, thought things through that, you know, less mass is easier to propel. So you need less power to do it. Um, And, you know, like I say, he thought these things through because there was a time, you know, through even American history here that bigger was better. But at some point you figured out that smaller is more agile and easier to produce and, you know, faster. There's all sorts of advantages to it. And I just found it interesting that he kind of figured that out then when you had people going bigger, better, and he went smaller and quicker. Hmm. True. And then won the uh, race and therefore one of the 
characters, main characters, got rich. So, yeah. If there were three main characters. You mentioned it in the introduction. And supposedly these three were intertwined. And yes, they did bump up against each other occasionally. But it's like, I don't understand why we're bothering with that. Because none of them seem to be connected or give a rat's patooey about each. I mean, just... I was I, I, I was waiting for at the end of the book for these three to come together and I don't know save the world or something or invent something awesome. No, they just kind of all went you know they occasionally bumped up against each other in the story and then they went off their own way and I don't even know why. Well, and uh, help me remember uh, the last I don't know chapter or two of the book wasn't it random. Um, news articles of the time or random stories. That... Oh, it was random. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it just jumped jumped into the future and yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was like it was like uh what happened, you know, to some extent again, to me the climatic climate of this book was when Mallory was on the docks in the Thames with a buffalo gun holding off the yeah. anarchists. Um and yeah, and then after that it did. It bounced into these news stories were you know like and the rest of the story you know like this guy died at a ripe old age and this you know suddenly disappeared and then i think the last one um was from 1931 and that was supposed to be some big reveal about the eye like this artificial intelligence machine engine thing whatever i didn't get it i don't understand so um okay i was by that point i kept the only reason i kept listening at that point because i was still it was kind of like starship troopers it's like oh my god there's got to be a point to this there's got to be a point to this no (laughs) no there isn't this is one step above starship troopers in my book Uh, the movie uh, not the book the movie yeah but i did think it was sort of interesting and maybe we've always had this nagging suspicion the more that uh we gather information about ourselves the more leery we come about things but this was written in 1991 i think it said and so that is like what um uh, math hard uh 20 some years ago uh he was already predicting basically what we would call the nsa now that you have this organization that tries to gather information on people and know what they're doing and try to either manipulate them, isolate them, or shut them down. Oh, that's um, been around since J. Edgar Hoover, so that's not new. Yeah, it's not a new theory, but I just thought the way that, uh, you know, like I say, he was doing it with his book there, with the, the computational engine and everything, um, you know, because I, I kind of looking at what he was predicting there and what we have now, it's like, well, it's there's similarities there. Yeah, there are some similarities, sure. and there are some similarities in some of the things that they were inventing to things that we have now. Um, and, and that's what makes steampunk cool, I think, is that they take things that we have now and make them handcrafted. What's the word I'm looking for? Mechanical? You know, punky, steampunky. Yeah. Well, visual. Well, yeah. they, they take modern... Uh, or at least more modern technological things, and they accomplish them using an older base technology. So using the base technology of steam power and then just say, okay, well, we have computers that are steam-powered and stuff like that. Yeah, to me, the the ultimate example of steampunk is um, like a MacBook with a typewriter keyboard. You know, old-school typewriter keyboard. I mean, that's 
when you when you talk about steampunk, that's kind of the best example I can think of. You still have the computer. Still yeah. works like, you know, a computer. You can still do all the things you can do on a computer. You just wind up with this clickety clack keyboard. So Well, I think if if or when we ever come into contact with another intelligent species, I think it'll be interesting to compare our development with theirs because quite likely there'll be things that we jumped way ahead on and then fell far far behind on compared to them and uh just but who who knows what those things will be right now that's an interesting science fiction archetype almost where yeah and and we dealt with that a little bit in proxima and ultima where yeah. you know they went back in time and you know to the romans and the aztecs and you know whatever um so yeah, that- they did it in an unrealistic way. Like, I don't think you could ever go to space with the technology that they had. Um, like, even even with the social structures of like still having slavery. Really, slavery is a, a, a social institution that will ultimately hold you back because it puts so much stress on uh, kind of like human. Uh, capital or human power where once you get the industrial revolution for the industrial revolution to fully take hold you need to let that go and let machines take over doing the bulk of work and in in a society where they put so much stress on slaves I don't think you're likely going to do that yeah there were a lot of problems perhaps with that I mean I'm trying I mean you know what a Roman ship looks like now put that in space I mean can we just talk about vacuum (laughs) you know Air? How oh, yeah, and the, like they used canvas as like a as a right. structural material in space. Like, okay, I don't think so, right? Yeah, no, not I just whatever. But yeah, so but the, it did, you know, like you were mentioning here, talk about well, what if we had skipped all of those things? You know, like what if the Romans went straight from the Romans to like space travel? You know, I think I think when we when we did that book. I mentioned because I I had read somewhere where they did a comparison and they used the example of the Vikings that the Vikings never developed a uh, a triangular sail so they were never able to sail into the wind by like tacking mm-hmm. whereas other different other cultures who were faced with the same problems developed that but just the Vikings never did and the Vikings just said well okay we'll put oars on all of our ships and we'll just have these guys just row all the time like if we have to sail into the wind we'll just lower our sails and these guys will just row and uh so you know like i just wonder how many things that we are doing today have we you know either gone further ahead than some you know other comparable species or we've fallen way behind and there's you know i wonder what what we've missed, right? Like what uh, collectively as a species did we kind of, what roads didn't we go down, right? That's, yeah, and we'll never know, but that's fun to think about. There's a book to write. Right. Well, like I say, in this book, they went down the path of the, you know, mechanical computational engine. In our society, we've gone down the road of basically silicon-based uh, a computing, you know, what if you know, somebody had made the connection and had come up with some sort of organic-based 
uh, you know, uh, computer that, you know, instead of having to go out and harvest, you know, sand and make it into silicone, you could somehow grow a computer and with the neurons and everything else, you know, there, there would be an idea for somebody to write a story. What, you know, some sort of organic based computational, because the, you know, the brain is this wonderful thing that we, are barely understanding. So, what if that was the basis for your, you know, your operating system? Something, you know, uh, genetic, like that. So, you know, and maybe you know, if we meet another society from space, they just with, oh, you guys use sand. You know, we use, you know, much the same way that we're looking at that. Going, oh, you're using physical, you know, um, mechanics to do your computation. So, you know, yeah, the the possibility of alternate routes or potential pivot points in history, you know, the what-ifs or whatever. Um, th- th- there's a plethora of stuff out there for science fiction writers well, to deal with. You could look at uh, our own world, because I remember reading that uh, that the patent, the original plas- uh, sorry, the original patent for plastic go- dates back to the late 1800s, like somebody developed this process for making it. They just didn't know how to go the next step to harden it. Well, what did, what if that guy had also discovered how to harden it? Like you, we we conceivably could have had plastics in like the 1880s. How much would how much different would our world look today if the whole plastic revolution had started like 50 years before, 50 or 60 years before it did? Hmm. Like we could be in a very different world, right? Mhm. Mhm. Interesting. Yeah. Or what if we'd skipped internal combustion engines and went straight to electric cars? Or, you know, yeah. or you know, what if we still had horses, but horses, I don't know, we had transporters, you know. See, like, there's some technology, like, I, I think it would be difficult to skip the internal combustion engine just because, like, it, it's kind of like a, a logical step to go on to almost anything else because they're, like, because... Uh, petroleum fuels produce so much energy for their weight it's just it's all to me it's like really inconceivable you could you could but what achieve if- anything beyond that it's like uh you know we're developing fusion power reactors right trying to there's really no way that you could get to fusion power without going through fission, fission. power first yep. because well, first off, in order to get the fusion power, you'd have to discover fission power, and it's just so much easier to do. Even though, like you know, there's a lot of negative side effects, but uh, it's yeah, you know, it's it's difficult for me to to see a path where you could do that, right? Yeah, although I could actually see if if there were no oil. There were, you know, there was no petroleum. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, you went straight from, if you went straight from steam, to electric. So yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. You know. Well, yeah, because if you were using, because yeah, I think it would have to take the route. You'd have to go from the physical because that's something we can see. It'd either be wood or petroleum. Something that we can see that if we light it, it produces, you know, uh, uh, heat, which can be used for. And then you have to start down that transition because to go to, like straight to electric power, electricity is something you can't see. You can't sit there and say, "I've got a cup of electricity" or something. I think you have to go from the. Well, electricity is physical, but it's not physical in the way that we can see it, touch it, or manipulate it well, by you ourselves can touch without it. some. Good once, luck with once. that, but you know. Once, well, static electricity—that's <laughs> always awesome too. Uh, well, and and also, just because you've discovered electricity, uh, you look how long it took them 
before they figured out how to use it, right? Like it's not inherent. It's not inherently obvious what you do with it. Whereas if you have some kind of liquid that you can light on fire, oh well, you know we've been using heat to do things for a long, long time. Yeah, we know this is an easier way to get heat. Oh, I know what we can do with that. Well, we'd been right? working Whereas, off of like whale oil and stuff. So when yeah, oil yeah, started yeah. bubbling out of Just, the ground, that became kind of obvious. You know, hell, olive oil. They were burning oil back in you know biblical times. Yeah. And if you can figure out, oh, this is something that if we refine it a bit, we can actually make it. And, and you know, if we turn it into an aerosol, we can get it to explode and release all of its energy at once. Well, maybe we can figure out a way to, you know, harness that, like to get a lot of energy at once. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and the, that you can see the stepping stones there. Whereas if you have electricity, like, you know, like, I don't think that's as obvious, like how you get, like to go from from getting electricity to flow from one place to another to the point where you figure out how to make an electric motor, that's a huge, huge, huge right. jump. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, this book compared to like Crosstime Engineer, um, it's my, besides all of the other problems I think we probably could agree on with this book, from our perspectives, I can I get somebody, people really like this, but um, it was just this one little kind of snapshot in time, and it really, I don't know, it just, you know, talking about the technology and what would happen if and what would be this and how would it be different, and I just, you know, as much as, I don't know, I just, you were in a different time with a couple of different technologies and a certainly a different political environment than is what we call our timeline. But this uh, is different from the cross-time engineer because yeah. in the cross-time engineer, a guy comes back with essentially a roadmap of like, right. I know how this stuff works and I'm going to show you guys how this works. Whereas that that same story, that guy wouldn't have gone back and said, oh, well, let's do stuff with steam power that I don't really know how to do. Right. You but know? this one doesn't – it doesn't carry forward for me. I guess the cross-time yeah. engineer, oh, yeah. I, yeah. you see you see the, you know, the future. Um, the difference engine, I don't see the future there. I don't get it. Well, I don't know what future they're trying to create this here. Is- Almost like a quaint look at like, oh, imagine if they'd kind of gone down this road. But I think you're right. Like it ultimately, that technology leads to almost a dead end. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're going to have to switch to something else. Because if you're going to go back and do the difference engine and put computers in 100 years early and do all the things that this book did, then where are we now in 2016? What's the difference between that timeline and this one? And I, you know, maybe that's one yeah. of the things that's frustrating me with the book is the fact that yeah, we went back and we changed all this stuff, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything. It just dies in a stink in London, well, and I yeah. Well, I, th- you know. I, I think basically what they did was they just ripped this chunk out of the historical timeline and did some things with it, and then left it. Like I say, there's no lead up to it, and there's no you know takeaway from it. It's just like I say, it just ends there. And I think if they would have tried to, you know, and then they suddenly you jumped, uh, what, 80 years into the future or whatever it was um, to the 30s or whatever to this thing. Well, you just, okay, I think it would have been more interesting and probably would have been a longer book, and I don't know if we would have wanted that or not, but um, yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, at least to take, you know, things and weave a story instead of just you know, jumping to the end and saying, here we are. Do you um, know the best thing about this book? 
And it's this- not a freaking <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> if this had been a trilogy, I'd be done. I yeah. bet if it was written today, it'd be a trilogy. <sighs> yeah, most of the times when there's more books, we want to go, we want to read it. And if there was more to this, it's like, no, no. you'd have to pay us. No. <laughs> We'd have to have a uh, Patreon fund just to get us to, you know, you read know, any more of these books. What I want to hear. didn't stop you guys from making me read Ultima. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> 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 that at least did have a redeeming value at the end. There was, Says you. <laughs> there was, they did portray the end of the universe. I mean, there was a, yeah, a point yeah. to the story. End but, of the universe with Nazis. Not, yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, you know, if anybody out there read this book, likes this book, is yeah. sitting there swearing at this for the last hour or whatever, going, you guys are idiots, I would love to hear a fan's take on this book. I really would, because obviously we are missing something that other people see in it. Um so, you know, if anybody out there is a fan of this book, hit us up on the forums or in Twitter or someplace um, and, you know, give us that perspective because it's just one we don't have. And well, as far and as I, the... Oh, good. Go ahead. Well, I was just say, you know, the thing that I guess I like about it, I just, I'm not like, say, a big steampunk fan, but I do like the idea of steampunk. I think just to take things that you know we have and uh, i think the thing for me about steampunk is it makes it visual uh you know you have gears turning you have all this other kind of stuff i say you look at your computer there i got three of them sitting here and i really don't they're doing things but you know you have to you take it for granted with steampunk you see the action you see the stuff taking place and i guess that's what i find you know uh, fascinating is that you just take this stuff and there's gears turning and there's uh, and, it, and it just, some of it just looks freaking cool. You got brass and wood, yeah. And, you know, from kind of, from a design standpoint or you know, something like that, you know. But yeah, this story this did leave uh, a lot to be desired, like a, maybe a ending, you know, <laughs> yeah, a um, coherent ending. A coherent um, ending would have been good. I don't get yeah. it anyway. Uh, and as well, far as if, the pieces uh, of tech go, yeah, I, I there's nothing in there I want either. A derringer? Oh, really? I don't know what. A, um, a, a, a walking I'd, stick full of diamonds? That that would be okay. Well, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I like I say I would take you know if I had the room for it because they'd probably be big and massive, but just a a difference engine that you could just sit there and just watch it you know crank out whatever. It does. Just watch the gears turn, and um, you know, just I, I think that would be cool. Just to watch the whole thing operate. But I'm weird. But I think I'd take one of the uh, I can't remember what we called them though. The uh, the steam powered uh, cars. Cars. Yeah. Gurneys. Gurneys. Yeah. 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 I might take a kinotrope. Oh yeah. I'd just be curious how they work. I, I really didn't get a clear picture in my mind exactly how those things work. It, can do some of your PowerPoint yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> presentations with it. Oh, scary. Yeah, spread, spread the evil of PowerPoint. <laughs> so that wraps up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at scifitechtalk.com where there's some cool space junk available for purchase. And pop into the forums there and take part in the conversation or follow us on Twitter at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. If you have ideas or comments, please send them to greetings at Sci-Fi Tech Talk and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. So, Julie, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E, 
K-U-E-H-L. And links to the other blogs, podcasts, and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. And Mike, where can people find you? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and the other stuff that I do, including the other podcasts I do, can be found over at um, uh, about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. All right, and I can be followed on Twitter at Bronco Sire. That's S-Y-E-R. And I uh, just wanted to give a shout-out to a friend of ours, Mark Shepard, who had some pretty <sighs> severe health issues this week. So just letting him know that we're thinking about him and uh, hope he's uh, on the road to recovery. Him and his family. And also, happy yes. birthday, Jeff. Oh, yes. <laughs> Nothing when, says happy birthday like going and working a night shift as soon as we're done this. <laughs> Happy birthday to me. So um, next week, uh, we are going to... What are we doing next week? Oh, Childhood. (laughs) Next week, we'll be covering the sci-fi miniseries Childhood's End. Um, And the IMDb blurb on it is, After peaceful aliens invade Earth, humanity finds itself living in a utopia under the indirect rule of the aliens. But does this utopia come at a price? (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.